podcast. Hi, everybody. This is Ruth. And this is Tina. And we are talking Smash, the podcast where we wear scarves and talk about Smash. Tina, would you describe your scarf for me? I am wearing a black wool cotton poly <laughs> scarf that is my husband's because it is very, very cold. And you are in lieu of a scarf. Yes, a again, necklace. I I am wearing a chunky necklace. It is it is not vintage, but I feel it's like you know I feel like this is like a Marilyn Monroe era necklace. It, it evokes yes. like the and, late forties. Yeah, and it's kind of got like mm-hmm. abstract flower shapes, and yeah. like there's like each leaf or petal is like a solid really bright primary color mm-hmm. um, thing. We've got yellow and green and the green is kind of iridescent and then the yellow and blue are just like really yellow and really blue and enamely and then there's like sparkly rhinestones in it as the centers of flowers. So it's pretty. Thank you. So today we are talking about the episode, The Workshop. And this originally aired on March 19th, 2012. And NBC.com synopsis is, Everything comes to a head as Eileen, Derek, and the team present Marilyn the Musical to would-be investors, Bernadette Peters guest stars. (laughs) And it was directed by Mimi Leader, who uh, currently uh, is the director of the like Oscar Beatty on the basis of sex starring um uh what's her face from Rogue One and um, the theory of everything that English chick the English one and she's not Jewish but she's playing Ruth Bader Ginsburg and some people are a little agitated about that because you know ethnic people should get to play ethnic people you know um but Mimi Leader has this amazing history in Hollywood she was like for a couple decades, she was like one of the only women directors, and she, um, and not only that, but she was a action movie director, and she directed like all these, um, like just the big popcorn flick things, like Deep Impact, and then she had this, she had like one box office bomb, which was um, the Haley Joel Osment movie, Pay It Forward. Oh. <laughs> and it, like, oh. ruined her. It ruined her. And so she women, went to movie jail for, like, 10 years or something? Like, try, like, almost 20. Oh. So, yeah, On the Basis of Sex is her first movie. It's been, like, 18 years. Wow. That punishment does not... I mean, that movie was a crime. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But the punishment does not fit the crime. But it's, like... The, How many movies has M. Night Shyamalan gotten to I, make? Seriously, women just aren't allowed to... Make bombs. Make bombs. Like, and I mean, at this point too, like only white women have been, you know, successful directors in Hollywood. Like, can you imagine if like Ava DuVernay, like just, I don't know, cost people like $50 million or something like that? Like, I, well, I don't even. <laughs> a Wrinkle in Time did not. Did it, did it ever break even? I don't know. Yeah. In my world, <laughs> like everyone I know saw Wrinkle in Time at least once. <laughs> but Yeah, but that, that is not the case. <laughs> um, so, yeah. <laughs> Mimi Litter. Mimi Litter. Mimi Litter. Um, yes. Um, so, yeah, she directed it. Yeah. And it was written uh, by Jason Grote, who is a playwright and screenwriter who's had, like, he's uh, had, like, he does, like, um, he's had, like, a lot of, like, off-off-Broadway success and uh, you know awards for things like that like he's worked with like club thumb theater company and 
um, things like that. So some of his plays are 1001 and Maria backslash Stuart. All right. So before we dive into the episode, we're going to talk about some real life theater news that's happening. Yes. Beginning January 7th, the Actors' Equity Association has called for a strike against developmental presentations as part of its appeal for profit-sharing-based compensation for their members. Projects for members of the Broadway League under lab, workshop, and staged reading contracts will be placed on Equity's Do Not Work list following Equity and the League's failed ongoing negotiations. So the too-long-didn't-read of that is Equity doesn't want its members participating in the creation, the development and creation of works and then not getting additional payment or ongoing payment for it. Would you say that's a, is that concise? Yeah. (laughs) Well, so basically like, um, like every juggernaut musical Mm -hmm. that you see on Broadway Mm -hmm. typically has it. Well, if it's a new show has started like seven years before that, as a workshop and another workshop and another workshop. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes the actors who um, are, 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 the, are the core cast mm-hmm. in these workshops, they continue to work with it for years and years potentially. And then sometimes a lot of them don't then end up in the Broadway production and they don't, and they don't get any compensation for their like pivotal role mm-hmm. in like shaping this thing that then becomes a giant moneymaker that tours come to for 10 years. And as they, we see in smash, you know, the actors, they, they, they mention um, in, in this episode and in previous ones, like how little the actors are getting paid on a weekly basis to do these workshops. Like they're probably getting paid maybe less than minimum wage yeah. if you if you if you added mm-hmm. up all the hours. And then, so not only are, are the actors getting paid very little, but like the actors who are are playing like main characters are are really helping to create this. Yes, um, because like, and I, you know, so yes, I am for this. I think the actors oh, really absolutely. do deserve compensation because a lot of times, like, they really are fundamental in shaping what the final product is like what the final blocking ends up being Mm -hmm. what the final choreography ends up Mm -hmm. being you know kind of how the characters you know how the character ends up being and how that character ends up getting played by actor after actor after actor Mm -hmm. once it's on broadway and being run for 10 years and like you have all these actors who are to some extent replicating the performance that was created by the person in the workshop all those years ago. Absolutely. So it's so different from other industries. Cause like if a songwriter is selling, trying to sell a song they wrote to, you know, like a huge musical act, you know, like if you're shipping your song around because, you know, you'd like Beyonce to sing it or Lady Gaga to sing it. It's usually the, the songwriter records their, their own voice, you know, but in, in theater, it's like you, you have to have other people doing that. <laughs> so you're like selling sort of a product that other people are performing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's going on and we'll, Oh, yeah. but oh, and the hashtag is um, hashtag not a lab rat. Yeah. But some notable exceptions are, um, even though they didn't have to, the, the Broadway productions of, or the proto Broadway productions of Hamilton and mean girls did have profit sharing agreements in place with the actors who did their workshops. So yay, yay. them. It's it's kind of surprising it's taken this long to get here because as I'm sure a lot of musical theater fans know, um, uh, a chorus line was controversial from the very start with the actors 
especially the act again the actors in the very initial sitting down on the floor sharing stories about being actors you know people the monologues in a chorus line the characters are very much based on real actors and I know. so in and their case not only were they <laughs> developing the choreography in the show they were contributing their own life stories mm-hmm. <laughs> to yeah the and there's show. only one actor within you know the original company who has a writing credit on a chorus line but like there's so many more and there and an end not all of the actors who wrote or developed original monologues and stories actually were in the Broadway show like Helly Bishop you know was not one of the actors who like wrote something in that you know dusty loft one day like she was playing somebody else's story oh, she was playing somebody else's character I don't know if I altogether. realized that yeah. Um, I thought there, she was in it from... No, I mean, she was in it as a performer early on, but she was not among those people contributing very, the content, it, kind of. You know, yeah. like the jugs of wine and loose-leaf paper sitting around on the floor yeah. one night. Because the team. But, didn't she have beef with the... Uh, yeah, she does. Okay. <laughs> she I, had... think, I think a lot of, just, yeah, a lot of, a lot of people... Well, I think Kelly Bishop... Um, in particular has a lot of problems with the movie and because the movie came out within a reasonable time of the musical where like the cast could have been in the movie and I think that I could be wrong she could have other beef Mm -hmm. but I think part of her beef is that the Broadway cast is not in the movie Uh uh-huh okay well that's a legitimate beef yeah yeah and the movie, hmm. yeah, not great. And a chorus line like Hamilton had the same journey, where it was, you know, this little thing, and then it went to the public theater, and then the public theater gave it a home, and then it went to Broadway. Yes, and then it won the Pulitzer. <laughs> <laughs> and the other exciting theater news is <gasps> we have, we saw pictures on the internet, and 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 then learned Gillian Anderson is starring. In a theatrical production of All About Eve, which you, which any listener of this podcast knows we we are a smidge obsessed with, um, directed by Ivel Van Hove, the guy who directed all the super cool productions of Arthur Miller plays for the past couple of years and other stuff, and it's in London. So we're gonna have to go to London. I guess we have to go to London. So we need to set up a Patreon so that uh, listeners. <laughs> Can fund a trip to London and and tickets yes. for us to yes. see Gillian Anderson. To, oh my God! As Margot Channing. Oh. I saw her in um, a streetcar named Desire <gasps> a couple of years ago, but it was in the round. And I love a, sh- a, a play in the mm-hmm. round, and it was it was so damn good. And she was she was such a strong Blanche too, and I mm. love you know. I love a Blanche that, like, you know, has some backbone and then the backbone gets, you know, chiseled away. Blanche must have been really different from some of the, like, super famous ones. Yeah, she she was a steely Blanche and it was awesome. And, uh, no, that was such a great production overall. And, like, there's just, like, there's, like, kind of, like, mental images from that production that, like, are just in my head and, you know... They're they're gifts of the mind, yes. and it was it was it was real good. 
It was in Brooklyn. Okay. And it originally, I think it also originated in London. But um, yeah, so that is very exciting. And yeah, it's been a while since I've gone to see a straight play. Well, I think the last straight play I saw was Angels in America, oh, which yeah. counts as... That's, that counts for like years of theater yeah. going. <laughs> yeah, that was like the Theater Goers, Mar- the theater goers Marathon. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. Oh, I guess, um, oh, what is it? The play that goes wrong. Or that, either that or um, the front page. With like, I saw that with, with uh, uh, Roger Sterling. Uh, he has a real name. And, I know. And John um, Goodman. Yeah. And... White-haired fellow. Yes. John Slattery. John Slattery. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, so I guess I have seen <laughs> <laughs> like in the last like 12 months but yes yeah but um i read uh, a couple when i was in college i read a couple like memoirs by ben hecht and oh boy is there some would he not do well in the current era Ooh. but they were they were very interesting but this is one thing that even as like a 20 year old this stuck out in my mind is like ooh, this isn't good um where he talked about um being a young man and uh, his grandmother or his parents had like a general store and he talked about like hiding out in the basement as like a teenager until one of the stores, until one of the um, clerks, the girl clerk, the shop girls had to like get something from the basement and then he would, he didn't say accost her, but he, you know, he made it sound like a normal fun thing, but you know, he would basically be like, I'd wait in the basement until a girl came down so I could molest her. Oh, God. Yeah, at her place of work. Yeah. So, but I still like his Girl Friday. So, but, yeah. Um, he did have lots of really good stories, though. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder who made the decision to, like, make that change in the front, from, like, the front page to, like, changing the character from a man to a woman well i i you know he did mention that in his book but i forget hmm. so but i think it was a really good call yeah yeah it's, it's i think it works movie. super good um but he also had lots of stories about howard hughes and oh and i think his book is probably one of the sources that helped inspire the play moonlight and magnolia <gasps> oh which is if um if anyone gets a chance to see that it's, it's delightful yes so the premise of the play is um, we are going to talk about Smash eventually. <laughs> so <laughs> somehow, like, how do, we're going to get there? We yes. are going to get there. So it's the so like the screenwriter, the director, and like the producer. Yes. Right? So Gone, it's like the, the, like the 18th. Director yes. So this is based on you know <laughs> lots of true stories. But so Gone with the Wind, David O. Selznick has fired the director, fired the screenwriter, um, hired a new director, and he Ben Hecht is like the script doctor of Hollywood at the time, and so he pays Ben Hecht like this obscene sum of money, and Ben Hecht will only commit to like. I don't know, a weekend or a week mm-hmm. to do rewrites on this. So David Selznick locks himself, Ben Hecht, and Victor Fleming, the new director, <laughs> in his office and, and like, isn't going to let any of them out until they have a script. And Ben Hecht has not read the book of Gone with the Wind. <laughs> so David O. Selznick and Victor Fleming keep, like, trying to explain the story to him and act it out. And he keeps, like, being like, so the gay guy. And they're like, what gay guy? And he's like, Ashley's not gay? And, <laughs> and then he's like, wait a minute. So this, you know, so the Confederates are the heroes of the story? And it's, it's really great. And, uh, 
yeah, so everyone go see that if you can. I forget who wrote that, but it's good. Okay. And so now, let's talk about this episode of Smash. Sure. So we're, <laughs> we're like still in our opening. <laughs> what was your scarf count? My scarf count was four. My scarf count was five, but that includes uh, some background actors as well. Um, so for, I counted one on Julia. Yes, her red scarf with the blue pattern yes, that she, that she like, almost that she like threw up in, into, in yeah, you know, in self disgust. Yes, and Karen has a scarf. She has a teal knit, like actual, like outdoor scarf. Yes, yes. Um, and then I counted three background scarves among like dancers and you know other people in the background. But um, you know, Julia had like a Julia had a. Is it a scarf? But no, it's a cowl. Yes, I, <laughs> I, I, I yes. yes. Actually, I could like I had I put another tick mark and then I erased it. Yeah. Oh, so I got so I got one ensemble member who had a paisley scarf, mm-hmm. and then my fourth scarf was one I don't think you mentioned then, which was Tom's purple scarf oh, on I show day. Missed that. Yes, he Tom wore a one. purple show scarf. Cool. All right, neat. So then um, I guess officially our scarf count would be six. Okay. All right, cool. Excellent. All right, cool. So the episode starts off the the day before the workshop. And, you know, nerves are high. Uh, Michael Swift wants to have 10,000 of Julia's babies. He's, like, (laughs) waiting for her outside their job to, like flirt with her as because I guess their the, co-workers are coming in yeah to because their this job. is it, I'm is this the morning after their or no I don't it's a couple so. days after I think so their their couch sex in the studio I think it's more than that because I think I think that last episode we were like a week away and then I think so if I remember correctly in chemistry, we were a week out from the workshop, and they slept together, and we saw, like, rehearsal the next day, when all of a sudden, Julia's handed in all her pages, and everything's good. Oh, yes, and they're eye-banging across the room. Exactly. And then... So now, it's like... So, now it's like... So, basically, it's like it's six days later. Okay. You know? And so, pre- presumably, it's like a few days since Ivy blew up at Derek yeah. in rehearsal as well. Yeah. And presumably Ivy is still on her prednisone. Oh, yeah. I'm sure, yes. yeah. But, yeah. Okay, cool. So, oh, and then Derek and Julia are inside and, like, he pulls her into an unused rehearsal room and they're canoodling and then Tom walks in. And then... Michael! Michael! It's not Derek. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> that... that would be a very... <laughs> That, that would, would be, be different. That would be a whole different thing. I would, <laughs> yes, yes, Michael. 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 There's just so many Julia dudes in this show. Into, yes, yeah. another, yes, another unlocked room. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And of course, yes, as you were saying, Tom walks in on them. And then. And then the camera pulls back and we reveal Alice. This is the best Alice eavesdropping reveal yet. It's fantastic. Like, there's no reason for Ellis to be in this room. None. He was just in a completely empty room, lurking in a corner <laughs> of a completely empty room, waiting for someone to walk into it and do something worth eavesdropping on. It's it's fantastic. It's it's almost knowing. Like the yeah. show has to know. I feel it is a little knowing, and I have to say, I I'm really enjoying Ellis on this rewatch. I 
am pro Ellis. <laughs> I like Ellis. I thought it, it was a, it was funny. Mm-hmm. And he's he's actually like feels like a little dangerous now, you know. Mm-hmm. Also, you know what? I just uh, like last weekend I watched uh, you on Netflix. Oh, that... yeah, I've been hearing about that. Yes, so um, it's a series and it's like about this man who's stalking this woman but she doesn't realize she he's stalking her um because he's very charming and personable and yeah uh but you know and Alice kind of reminds me of him in a way you know where it's like you know sometimes you find yourself rooting for the sociopath you know because when someone's the protagonist like you just you just want to root for them sometimes. It's like, instead of like amazing Amy, he's like excellent Ellis. Yes. <laughs> um, and meanwhile, Karen is going off to record a, a demo. Karen for the Tommy Matola stand-in. Karen has Bobby no Raskin. respect for other people's time. She is no. like just strolling across the street, jaywalking across the street, like not like no <sighs> conception of the cars around her who have to stop to not kill her. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she like she's late, yeah. but she's just strolling along, you know. What? Yeah. And she's unprepared, of course, <laughs> because and she uses the excuse, um, I'm, I'm like a theater singer, as if theater singers never have to use a microphone or never have to, you know, say, like, record a cast recording. Or, well, obviously, you know. Karen's never had to do, record a cast recording. But, like, she makes it sound like, how could you expect me, Broadway neophyte Karen Cartwright, to know anything about how microphones work? <laughs> and also, once again, Karen Cartwright, professional actor at this point like she to get in the door like to even be in the workshop like an agent was involved and why why doesn't she have a why doesn't she have a vocal coach decided that agents just do not exist in this world because they would be uh an inconvenience plot wise and narratively karen is so annoying yeah so annoying but But then of course she sings real pretty she sings a colby calais song and then the engineer or the you know producer i i don't know what this man's job title is but the man recording her sound engineer uh is like i love you karen cartwright to go on a real like a whole little journey because he's sleeping on the couch waiting for her to show up she shows up he's all annoyed then she like she sings wrong into his microphone and he's annoyed at that and then you know her karen magic takes over and he starts to do the head bobbing Mm -hmm. like Derek had to do when he was watching michael you know do that bruno mars thing down at la mama (laughs) you know so we've got another instance where like the actor has to sell that something really amazing is happening by nodding their head you know in a rhythmic fashion (laughs) and he ends this whole journey from disgust to to love yeah being like i love you karen cartwright and then Pretty soon into this, uh, we're you know we're back in the the rehearsal studio. You know it's it's we're counting down the hours until the workshop tomorrow. And Bernadette Peters makes her guest star appearance, and we we're going to talk about this for a bit because we have to we have to decide if this is a retcon or not. Bernadette Peters is playing Lee Conroy, who apparently is this like she she's basically playing Bernadette Peters, but her name is Lee Conroy. And she's Ivy's mother. So now, all of a sudden, Ivy, who's been working the chorus line for a decade, who's never had a break, who has phoned home to unsympathetic ears about her callbacks, 
all of a sudden now has the biggest Broadway living legend as her mother. And it, it's, it, if it's not a full-fledged retcon, it is such a veer that it changes Ivy's character so much. It's funny. It bothered me more on the initial viewing. Mm-hmm. On this rewatch, like, my expectations for the show are so much lower <laughs> that, that I'm just like, oh, yay, Bernadette Peters is here. So all we know about Ivy's mother from the pilot when she calls her to tell her, like, oh, hey, I got this big audition or mm-hmm. whatever, is that her mother is kind of... Like, changes the subject. Yeah, is unsympathetic, passive-aggressive, changes the subject to her brother and how, like, it's so great that he's, like, not in jail or whatever, mm-hmm. you know. So, and then we get Lee, who is, like, super-duper passive-aggressive and unsupportive mm-hmm. throughout 90... competitive with her daughter. 5% of the episode, her yeah. Her daughter's yeah. starring in this workshop as, you know, one of the most famous women of all time, and she's, like... Uh, I get from like Lee's first scene is that she's jealous of her daughter and she's competing for the attention. Well, she's certainly sabotaging her. She's certainly, it's not even a competition. She's taking the attention from her daughter. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think they've established that like Ivy's mom is a stone cold bitch in the pilot. And so this goes along with that. I mean, so I think their chemistry as mother and daughter is, Fantastic. Oh, yes. Megan Hilty is a really good actor. Megan Hilty was just breaking my heart this episode. Yeah. It's, um. So I, I buy it, and I think Megan Hilty brings so much hurt, and it's like they're not estranged, because, I mean, clearly, like, she's including her mother in her life. I mean, like, she's literally, like, has her mother staying in her apartment, sleeping in the same bed as her. Um, so, like, she's trying to be the good daughter who includes her mother. Um, but she's like, she's well, like I think she's not just... getting what she needs from her mother. Yeah. And there's so much hurt. And you can also, I can also, I can also fill in a lot of backstory where I, I believe that Ivy is way past the point of asking her mother to help her in her career. And I could also even imagine like 10 years ago, I can fill in a lot of backstory in terms of her mom saying, oh, no, honey, you have to make it on your own. Yes, that's just what I was going to say. Like, I can fill all that in my head. Like, I can totally see that, like, Lee being, well, if you want to do this, you have to do it on your own, Mm -hmm. just like I did. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And she notably, like, she doesn't even use the same last name as her mother. And, like, she could very well have a different last name than her mother. But, uh, you know, plenty of showbiz kids take on... The, the, like their, Charlie Sheen. There's the stage name of their famous yeah. parent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Lee Conroy, like part of like her coming to the rehearsal and everything, I think is part of like my, first of all, watching Bernadette sing, uh, everyone, everything's coming up roses. That's never going to be a waste of time. Never. Totally. Like, and I also think if I may just to cut in that this is a better performance than what she did at the Tony's. I don't really, I think it might be, yes. So maybe this was kind of, I don't know the chronology, but maybe this was like her do-over for, you know. Possibly. Because yeah. I remember like when Bernadette was cast in that, a lot of people were like, huh, not who I would think. Like, obviously she's the right age and, you know, you get to that age in your career and, and when you're Bernadette Peters, of course, like you're going to 
look at when the last time someone did a revival and you're going to say, I'm the right age, now is the time to play Mama Rose. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people were like, this is not the right role for her. Um, and I, I didn't see that production. And I, one of the things I heard a lot of people say was that um, Bernadette Peters seems like she's more of a grown-up baby June. And I think probably a very creative production could have like worked with that. Like, mm -hmm. but um, I never saw it. So I don't know, but I know a lot of people were underwhelmed by her performance. Yeah. I never saw it either. So is that she had a lot of vocal problems during <sighs> the run and there was like brouhaha, like she was only doing the performances where Tony voters were. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Because she like was having vocal problems. And so, yeah. And so huh. people were mad about that. Um, cause they're like, they went to see it and she wasn't performing cause she mm. was saving her voice for when the Tony voters were going to be there the next day or whatever. But, um, yeah. So I don't know. I didn't see it, but, but yeah, I mean, I certainly enjoyed watching her sing it. So if you saw Bernadette Pleaders in Gypsy, I'm still not sure. I feel so weird even saying the name of that show. I love that show, but it's, that's sort of a slur, that word. And I, I still haven't figured out like how to talk about the show when I that's a word I don't say like I even when I type it like I censor because it, <laughs> it is it is a bad word it's a bad word and it's really offensive to people so but that's that's like a whole topic for our next podcast <laughs> that's problematic my whole thing with this episode is like I feel like there's like a sense of urgency missing from in in like in these like in this final day of rehearsal yeah and and then the next day in like the lead up to doing the goddamn one and only performance there's right. like there's like a sense of urgency i think missing right. across the board That's so you know and i'm totally on board like with the cast being like all you know squealing to like see her and see her perform but like Derek is not squealing because that's just not his way. But, you know, couldn't he have been, like, a little more annoyed or, like, yeah. in terms of, like, time is a ticking, people. Yeah. <laughs> I will talk about other other instances where time seems to, like, not be urgent <laughs> to people as we talk about the rest of the episode. But this was one of them. I um, also I, – I, I enjoy this scene because I think the ensemble – like nails the crap out of their background acting. Well, and I was going to say, like, I don't think a lot of acting was required from anyone in this scene. I feel like they really were just like, great. yeah, yeah, they're just so giddy. I know, like, yeah, from her and it's and Julia and Tom are doing. so giddy, but yes, it's really fun having the ensemble being all giddy. It's very fun, and I so. do like out. Derek is the worst. I like how he he's the only one to who, go and sit next to Ivy, and he kind of he rolls his eyes a little bit, and he's like checks in with Ivy and he apologizes because of course he can only apologize privately <laughs> when she's vulnerable. Mm -hmm. But he says something nice to her. He says something nice to her. Yes. You know, and it's the only one who's kind of like, yeah. you know, wow, your mom's a lot, isn't she? I, I, I have to say though, this is just another thing. Okay. So Ivy is in the room with apparently two of her best friends. And it's just a little strange to me that there's not even a moment with Tom or Sam well, I feel like Tom gives her like a look from the piano, but okay. it, it is like a microsecond. Yeah. It is. It does not last long. Then, you know, later in the episode, we see Tom like notice Ivy, mm -hmm. you know, and try to 
help her. Yeah. But yes, yeah. So, but yes, at this point in time, of the three men in her life mm-hmm. in the room, Derek is the only one who kind of acknowledges her. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but this is Megan Hilty, like, you know, starting to do the heartbreak in this episode. Mm-hmm. Like, she just walked into the room with her mother, like, already so defeated, it felt like, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of... I love the direction. Uh, it could be, it could have been written into the script, but I love that Lee turns around and just piles on her huge fur coat and her bag onto Ivy. And Ivy is just like swallowed up by her mother's presence and her physical things. And it's, it's really good. And this is a very, very well-directed episode. There are lots of tiny moments in this episode that I like, Mm -hmm. but I don't like the episode overall. Okay, sure. Yeah. So yeah, but um, also I have to give a shout out to Wesley Taylor as Bobby. <laughs> I'm always going to I'm always going to find a reason to shout out Wesley Taylor, but he really deserves it because he is just beside himself when Lee Conroy comes in. <laughs> and he's the one who 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 gets us this performance because he's the one who's just oh, sing something. Yes. <laughs> and I love it. So in one of the reviews, I'm sorry, I don't remember which person wrote this, but this was such a classic. Oh, don't make me sing. <laughs> Don't make me sing. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, and this is the last day of rehearsal is just a day of visitors and no one seems to care. All the visitors that are coming and going. Family comes in. (laughs) Yeah, so Michael Swift's weird wife comes Mm -hmm. with his son and like doesn't even like peep okay. So I understand the wife and the son are here for plot reasons. Uh, I understand that. But like it this it was just so dumb. It's I mean, bad who timing. lets your two year old just like race into a room like, and where people on are working? Stage, yes, you know? like he's literally like he's not even like on like taking a ten minute break. Like he's literally she like, just opens on, the door yeah, and is like, like go on, the kid. kid go. You can. <laughs> and this is the age of cell phones. So like she and she, like Michael Swift is an established Broadway performer at this point. You know, and. So yeah, she could have texted him and say, "Hey, we're in the area," <laughs> or like, "Hey, like we're it," or like maybe maybe like they had this plan to meet up, and she was like, she could have texted him like, "Hey, we're waiting outside. Mm-hmm. We'll wait till a break," you yeah. know, and you know they could have had the moment of Julia seeing the kid like yes. without yeah. Oh, but and also Michael Swift's weird wife, who was so into him doing this show, is not at the performance the next day. That was a weird. That was something that like. I bumped up on. Oh, I wonder, you know what? When people have really small kids, <laughs> like, you know what? That, that didn't even register. Cause it's like, uh, they have, they have a two year old. <laughs> so I don't know why I didn't like, I just, but she was so into him doing this. Yeah. You know, yeah. Well, at least she didn't bring the two year old to the workshop. Like yes. she said she'd do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh Lordy. Yeah. And, uh, and, But this gives us one of Derek's best lines, one of his most self-actualized lines (laughs) in terms of Derek is saying like, I never understood the whole kid thing. And then Julia gets up and is upset because not because of what Derek said, but because she's just seen her lover with her with his young child. And uh, he says and Derek is like, that's the least offensive thing I've said in days. (laughs) That was a terrible Derek. But 
That was a great line, though. And it's a great line. Yes. It's really good. And it felt like a little bit winky to, yeah. like, we, you know, like someone someone here knows Derek is the worst. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's like this episode is very in the know about itself. Which I know, with I the like. Ellis moment. I do like that. The Ellis moment and Derek, like, being yeah. in the know of how he's terrible. And Eileen, this is, we're jumping ahead, but Eileen later, you know. <gasps> Eileen is so good in this episode. Well, like, she is, so but she also Eileen. acknowledges the line of like, you know, Derek being the worst in yeah. terms of, you know, I've, I have written down. Yeah, I wrote it down too. <laughs> Oh, yes. You're a great enough director to justify your behavior. And then he gets upset. He's like, hey, how am I something? How am I supposed to take this? She goes, you can take it however you like. And she says it with a smile. Like, I know. Eileen is she's not even the greatest to this put week. him down. She's yeah. doing great. But I think also maybe why, like, so I do like these little self acknowledging moments that the show is having this week. Um, and also, Derek, while still being the worst this week, is not pervy this week. In terms of he's not, like, rubbing mm-hmm. up on Karen or, you know. He gets no cookies for that. That is baseline human decency to not Well, I'm not saying he gets cookies, but I'm just saying, like, he's less, like, yes, you know. He hasn't, yes, he hasn't sexually harassed anyone at work in this episode. Yeah, he's just being, like, an asshole this mm-hmm. week. And that's, for Derek, that's progress. Mm. Yeah. So, so, uh, so, you know, Julia sees Michael Swift's perfect family and now she feels like shit and she gets all the clumped and she runs out to the street and she's like in her, you know, she takes her scarf off and she's like muffling her face with it. Like she's about to break and uh, Tom comes out to her to check on her and Julia's Basically, like, I got, I got to go. <laughs> like, I know we but have first, a workshop like, in yeah. 18 hours, but I, I got to go. Well, and this is where, like, I, part of me was like, that's suck it up, Julia. You've got a show tomorrow. Yeah, there's, that's, there's no. Like, you've got a show tomorrow. You have, you have a job, Julia. Like, that's, that's, that that's unacceptable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like out, like literally outside of her husband or child or herself. Like I don't know, like being about to die or something. Like I would say, like even if like Leo had a broken leg, that would not, be, like, because Frank could handle that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, yeah. There's yeah. just no excuse for for leaving. Yes, but then we have a great Eileen and Ellis scene. We've we've got a couple. We've got like some. I really love the pairing of Eileen and Ellis, and I think they love it too. You know, yeah, there's some really fun yes. pairings, but like Tom so, and Leo, mm-hmm. unexpected, you know, fun unexpected pairing. fun pairing. Yes, and, but yeah, I I think when Ellis is with Eileen, that's like his yeah. best. So Ellis is running to Eileen <gasps> to tell her like the dish of Julia's having an affair with Michael Swift, and I Eileen. This is I think Eileen's <gasps> best episode to date. Yeah, in terms of. Um, She's just kicking ass She's all over the place. A boss in this episode, and you want her. You like you want to work for her. Yeah, because I I love how she deals with Ellis when he mm-hmm. tells her this in terms of I'm not going to pre- pretend this is not useful information because it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but if you repeat this to anybody, you will never work on this production or in this town ever again. Yeah, because she is a boss, uh, but she is also at the same time like a friend. To, well, not I wouldn't even say a friend, but she is like she's helping a sister out 
in terms of... I didn't of, take it as that. Well... I think this, because this is just, something that could just derail... Ah, that's true. The production. Mm. I just see her in, in boss mode. This is... It has nothing even to do with, like, the personal feelings and what it would do personally to people's marriages if people found out. Like, I was... I saw her as this would mess up everybody. Okay. She's seeing the whole board. You've convinced me. And it makes me like her even more. (laughs) (laughs) So Julia, in the most unprofessional manner ever, goes home. Goes home. She goes home. It's like 11 a.m. Yeah. And she finds, she finds Leo with his, with his friend. What's his friend's name? She finds Leo in his bedroom. With Mason and his vaporizer and their smoking pot. His electronic vaporizer. I love it. I'm so excited we got to meet Mason. Yeah. <laughs> I'm happy we got to meet Mason as well. And you know what? I, Julia and Leo is another pairing that I really like. Yes. I I think that after like the initial... After that initial, initial scene oh, where like that's... it was written like he was a 10-year-old. Yeah. That scene I don't like. But I think every Julia and Leo scene since then, mm-hmm. like... Yeah, like I think mm-hmm. they like they they work really well off each other and where he lets her know in so many words yeah. that he knows and she thinks and he thinks she's a piece of shit. I still think they're unclear on how old Leo is because there's even a line later where Frank says something like Leo's a teenager and I can't remember if he says now, but it feels very much like the, there's a now implied like Leo's a teenager now as if like Leo being defiant is something that's new. Mm-hmm. And, but I, what, what I also like is that, um, how Leo and Julia kind of rhyme nicely too with Lee and Ivy about children who are disappointed with their parents. That is, I, that is a nice parallel that I didn't notice, but I like it. Yes. In terms of these, Mothers who have let their children down mm-hmm. and how they uh, address it. Mm-hmm. And this is this is jumping ahead to the end, but when Leo and Julia, when Julia comes home and and talks to Leo and say basically like I'm gonna ch- I'm I'm again where they talk in the code in terms of code. we're gonna fire Michael. He's not right for Leo's yeah. breakdown into tears. I liked it. I I think that that there, even like if you close your eyes, I buy Leo. Just again, if you close your eyes, I buy Leo as a younger teenager who's like, they're, they're, this is not an 18-year-old confronting his parent. This is like a younger teenager who's like, I've never been, I've never been this disappointed. I'm too young <laughs> for you to be letting me down like this. And how scary, like how scary it would be for yeah. like a 14 year old to, to like, just feel like the foundation of their world was. Yeah. Cause Mason looked like a younger ish. I don't know if he looked younger, or if it was just the fact that he was short. Yeah. You know, it's true. <laughs> I think, yeah, they have trouble casting. And you know what it is? And, children on the show i'm gonna tie this to a wrinkle in time you know what was so great about ava duvernay's a wrinkle in time the kids were played by kids and sometimes there's a trade-off for that because they're not as experienced and skilled in their technique but you can't replace an actual 
child. Yeah. Okay. That's one thing I liked about The Wrinkle in Time in terms of like when you see like a 17-year-old playing a Mm 13-year-old as opposed to a 13-year-old playing a Mm 13-year-old. It is a different thing. Yeah. So... I mean, yeah. yeah, Storm Reed was playing her age, you know, Charles Ball. And I know, I, I think that they judged the ages. They did judge the ages. Because um, I think they were older the, in the books. But the actors the were the actors ages were they were supposed to be. Ages, yes. Which was fantastic. Yeah. So, but yeah, I, yeah, Leo, the Leo and Julia scenes really, really got to me. Yeah. I thought, you know, you could really feel like the the stakes and the hurt and all that good stuff it's good directing there's like good performances of course these are good actors but i think that mini leader really got some good performances from these talented actors okay so yeah yeah. so then after that uh, i always like to look for like good direction and like point it (laughs) out when it's happening because sometimes it's hard this is hard for people to like well what is why is this good like is this is this are the actors making this thing good or is there like where's the hand of the director in this and then i've got yeah and then later we'll just we can discuss like you know i don't know how you felt about it but like why doesn't this move me why am i not moved by this so but we'll get to that um but so next we're you know so we go from julia's place to ivy's apartment where her mom is just oh Oh, with the being shitty yes like just with dagger after dagger not even subtle ones and like because ivy's like uh, you know talking she's she's like she's talking to her mom she's sharing like parents sometimes complain like oh you don't tell me anything and then like ivy's telling her mom stuff like oh you know i i I'm I'm a little nervous about this medication I'm being prescribed and you know and her mom is is her mom is driving her to take sleeping pills and we know how Ivy feels about medication. Oh uh, well and no again, she's totally over that but like yeah the stigma again the stigma about taking a sleeping pill. Well it was so funny too like the second she was like taking the she was like opening you know she was opening that pill bottle I'm like oh so this is the storyline that we're going to do for yeah. the rest of the season. Okay. And she's dancing as fast as she can. <laughs> but I love when her, and her mom is watching some like it hot on the mm-hmm. tiny little television. And she's like, look at that charisma. I don't know how you're going to pull that off. It's awful. It's oh. such bad parenting. Mm-hmm. And then I wrote down bar. Oh, that's where Eileen and Ellis are at the bar talking about the, oh, we didn't talk about the heating thing. The furnace is just like on hyperdrive and no one can shut it down. Mm-hmm. And the room is too darn hot all day long. And so, of course, Eileen is concerned about this and wants to make sure it's fixed before the next day where they have all the fancy um, people in to mm-hmm. see their workshop. Um, because no one wants to be in a room that is super mm-hmm. duper hot. Um, and I remember you and I once saw... Uh, do you remember this? All right. So it was the summer and we were in like a theater space. It was a black box theater space and they were filming the performance. So they had shut off all ventilation or an air conditioning. And it was like July and it got real hot in there. Yeah, it did. (laughs) But there was this woman behind us and she kept you know, kind of wriggling around and she was wearing something jangly. So whenever she wriggled, she jangled. And then at the end of the show, uh, when the lights came up, I turned around and it was Fran Drescher. <gasps> <laughs> and she looked amazing. She really did. Yeah. Like, her skin was perfect. Mm-hmm. And yeah, she just looked beautiful and moisturized. Yeah. So all this to say, Eileen's concerns are... Uh, 
not unfounded. Yeah. Um, so she's at the bar with handsome bartender Nick and <gasps> Alice. So yes. And Alice is, you know, has been her little minion today. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about like, you know, trying to get like a, an under the table furnace repairman. And then Eileen decides to be really racist. <laughs> Cause uh, Nick, sexy bartender Nick is like, you know, I know a, a plumber and somehow the topic that he's Chinese comes up and Eileen says, I've never heard of a Chinese plumber before. No, Alice is the one that has a Chinese oh, plumber. Oh, Alice has the Chinese plumber. Yes. So, yeah, Alice needs, I don't know, feels the need to point out the ethnicity. Well, I guess plumber. I think and it came in because, like, the plumber didn't speak English. And okay. That's why, okay, well, that's fine. And then. that's why his ethnicity came into play because he's like, he doesn't speak English well. I just couldn't even remember like how it came up. Yes. Yes. That's how, okay. So it came up in a, in an organic, like makes total sense way. But then Eileen, like, what do you mean you've never heard of a Chinese plumber? Like what, what does that even mean? Like everyone knows all plumbers are German. I don't know. (laughs) Like what does that mean? I think it just means that Eileen has been on the Upper East Side for a really like long time. Like a significant time. percentage of people in the world are Chinese. <laughs> Presumably some of them. Like, like, just, you know, the odds are that China would have to have a plumber or two, I suppose. Like, it makes no sense. It doesn't, I don't, I don't get it. It's like the weird way they talk about like homosexuality on the show, which is like, you can't even blame it on like one writer. It's like a thing that all these writers keep doing. Like, what does that, what does that say about the character? Just, is that really supposed to mean that she's like, because like what, like are all of the people who work for Eileen like wasps? Like who, 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 like it's New York City. Like she's seen ethnic people before in service jobs. I don't get it. It's, and it's just, it's so, it's irksome because it's just this like casual racism that everyone just is fine with. And I hate it. I think it's just there to like help point out that Eileen has been living in this, you know, kind of very cloistered kind of bubble in in the city and now she's experiencing new things like Chinese plumbers and all sorts of stuff and $7 <sighs> martinis. I, I'm not I saying it's don't great. Buy yeah. it because Eileen is also spunky, you know, Eileen is also like, just hand me the wrench, you know, Eileen is like, at no point do I get the sense that Eileen is new. I don't, I, yeah, I think it's just, it's the kind of casual, it's just, it's casual I racism think it's casual that people racism. Yes. think is fine and it's funny and I, I, I don't know what it's supposed to achieve. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know how much more time we want to spend on it, but like, I think... I don't think it's a good line. I I think it's a stupid throwaway line, but um, I guess like in the city, like you kind of go through waves of immigration and like, you know, who's in what jobs, Mm -hmm. like, you know, in the fifties, all the bus drivers were from Ireland. Mm -hmm. And then in the seventies, all the bus drivers were from Jamaica. And, And so like certain, like whatever, certain kind of professions tend to go to like certain groups of immigrants as they kind of, you know... Like, that's how the whole police force ended up being Irish at, you know, whatever, one point in time. So, But that's also part of racism. That's, well, yes, that's true, too. Yes. <laughs> Everybody should read How the Irish Became White. It's an important book about immigration and white people's history in America. <laughs> um, and then, well, then, and then bartender Nick turns around, like, 45 seconds later and also says something not as problematic. It's like, this is just <laughs> my radar. My racism radar is, like, very, like 
highly tuned. He calls him illegal. Like, he's illegal. And people aren't illegal. People are people. People can't be illegal. There's, there's just no such thing as an illegal person. You can do something illegal. A, an action can be illegal, but people are not illegal. And that's all I have to say about that. Moving on. Lawyer John deserves more. <laughs> no, the, the next thing we go into is the montage of people waking up, which is lovely. I loved – that was one of my favorite things of the episode, the montage of people waking up. But, well, not really waking up because none of them are sleeping yeah. except Karen. Yes. <laughs> so, again, oh, I'm sorry. Either sometimes I remember things as I read reviews for Smash Lash. Sometimes as we're talking, I'll just remember like a little side thing somebody wrote. <laughs> and – um. I want to say that Hilary Buses wrote this just because I, her writing's hilarious and, and she might have written this. Um, but somebody wrote that like everybody like had a restless night's sleep except for Karen Cartwright, who had little birds get her ready for bed. <laughs> and yes, and yes, and we had like a very minimal dev uh, sighting. Yes. Yes, dev had one line, in and out, bing, yeah. bang, boom. Just like, probably who's having... calling you at 6 a.m.? Yeah. It was Bobby Raskin. <laughs> Because, I don't know, music producers are up at 6 a.m., I guess. I guess so. He could... Well, maybe he was up all night. Yeah. That's my... Maybe he was up all... Or maybe, he, like, he works... Because California is behind, right? So it would be 3 a.m. It would be 3 a.m. In, in California. I don't know why I've decided Bobby Raskin works out of L.A. I don't know why. I made that maybe up. Maybe Bobby Raskin was in London. Maybe. Who knows? Yeah. He was, he was trying to get tickets for Gillian Anderson and <laughs> all about Eve. He knew. He knew. Oh, but um, this is great. The montage of people, you know, waking up or already being awake in mm-hmm. the morning. And again, Derek does not get cookies. I'm not saying Derek gets cookies, but see, like, you know, I think it was one of his more human moments or uh, where we see him and he's just in his bed and it's just covered with books and papers mm-hmm. that he's looking at, like, mm-hmm. you know, desperately trying to find you know, one last thing, yeah. one last nuance that he can put in the show. Assholes can be hard workers. Yes. Assholes can be vulnerable. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> and then we see Tom and Lawyer John does deserve better, but Tom mm-hmm. is not sleeping. Ivy's not sleeping. Mm-hmm. Julia is not sleeping. They're all just waiting for the sun to come up. Lee Conroy slept. She makes sure she tells Ivy that. <laughs> she slept like a baby. Mm-hmm. And despite the sleeping pills that Ivy took, because now her hypersensitivity oh. has been overcome, she she did not sleep. Prednisone is a gateway drug. <laughs> then we're back in the rehearsal room. And Julia and Michael are confronted with each other once again. And uh, Derek is like working working on a scene with Michael. And, 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 uh, and so he like asked Julia to step into the scene. And they have like a really great... Is this... Oh, they haven't like... I'm skipping over Julia basically breaking up with Michael, saying, like, we yes. can't do this. Yeah, so you have she a child. broke up with him. You have yeah. a very cute child. Was, did Don't that happen in the day before? Him? Or this, you know, it... But no, it happened ha- today because yeah. she had her nice outfit on with mm-hmm. the cowl. Yes. Yes. I love that outfit. That I was love, great. It's great because it's, like, um, it's monotone. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because of the red hair that she can wear something, like, so neutral because her hair is such a pop of color. Uh, because she's wearing like it's like all like sand. it's like this form-fitting knit cowly drapey yes. but like form-fitting drape ruched it's ruched is there ruching 
I, just I I don't know I would I don't know if they would call it ruching, but it's got some it's got like it's three dimensional somehow yes. I don't know it's it's a mastery of it's, it's architectural yeah it's architectural yes. yes and she's wearing great shoes that are the exact color as her dress mm-hmm. and just earrings no chunky necklaces yeah. it's a restrained look for her it's a really nice outfit yeah. And she's got her hair pulled back in a bun. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, so right before they go into the room, she breaks up with Michael. It's like, you have a kid. I just, I just remembered. So do I. Yeah. Um, and this is, yeah, this is one of those things where uh, I'm kind of annoyed with the show in terms of they've put us through all this sturm and drang, getting Michael and Julia together. They, in, in terms of like screen time, they were together for like five minutes. Yeah. And then they've broken them up for us. So, yeah. I mean, shouldn't, you know, shouldn't we have at least gotten a couple more scenes of their scorching chemistry together before they broke? Uh, yeah, es- es- like, especially for, you know, because on rewatch, you know, for people, just in case anybody's just joining us this episode, we have a problem with how um, Michael pursued Julia. It was, at times, it was overbearing, and at times... You 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 could look at it as threatening, like showing up at her home unannounced, you know, saying I'll I'll make a scene if you don't let me in, you know, stuff like that. But at this point now, the the relationship looks like a hundred percent, you know, consensual, and they both want to be doing this. Um, so I want to acknowledge that, like right now, this is what it looks like. But also, like you know, a couple of episodes ago how Michael was coming on to Julia didn't seem okay. It was uncomfortable at times. Um, so it, and so I said all that to say that, yes, it would have also too, if, if the show is like, Oh wow, we kind of made Michael overbearing and creepy. They could have given a few more stolen moments or like a, a scene of them waking up after a, <laughs> I don't know, a mid, uh, um, an, afternoon, an afternoon rendezvous a, yeah. or something like that. Something, something more to establish. And I know it's been like six days, but I kind of think that they probably would have found it's I'm partly I'm going off of, I guess, sex in the city when Carrie was having her affair with big, I, I get the sense that they would have once they've broken the seal of we're doing this, we're, we're, we're having an affair. I get the sense that they would have probably, had sex again shortly thereafter, you know, like, like the, even the next night or like two nights later, like they would have, they would have wanted that second piece of cake. They would have, mm-hmm. you know, wanted to keep scratching that itch. Um, they're consumed with each other is what I think, what I think we're supposed to be thinking about this relationship. But again, we're not seeing it. Yeah. So, and I don't recall what happens after this with them really. So, but yeah, it seems like, you know, all this build up for like, you know, mm-hmm. one scene and then, and now they're broken up. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I remember, I remember some, some more of what happens with the saga. I don't, you know, I know that this is not the last we see of Michael Swift. I know it's not the last we see of him, but I just the last we see of Michael Swift, like literally this season, you know? Yeah. So, but anyway, so that was kind of like, really? You put us yeah. through all of that just to like, all right. And then, but then, yes, she and Michael go into rehearsal and, and they... They go off script and they're like ad-libbing, basically. The things... And I must say, to... if this is an example of Julia's book writing, it is not good. 
It is bad. <laughs> they are very good together, though. Like, they, yes. those actors click. I just, I, you know, in some ways I didn't even, I didn't even pay attention to what they were saying because how they were saying it yeah. was very good and very effective. And I, I did buy Derek going, wow, these are great lines. <laughs> I didn't buy things. Derek being like, these are great lines. <laughs> these are really great lines for Joe DiMaggio and Marilyn Monroe, <laughs> not for Michael and Julia <laughs> to say to each other. So I was like, yeah. Uh, so, so I did not buy that as great dialogue for the play that they are ostensibly performing in an hour. I like, I have to say, though, I do like the idea of Marilyn when the cameras are turned off, maybe her being a little bit more forceful, a little bit more Jillian Anderson, hmm. you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, um, oh, you know, before this, like the chorus, you know, the chorus kids, the ensemble kids, mm-hmm. Karen is talking about the producer that's called her. And it, but it's just, it's a really fun moment of, cause they're all stretching and it's a really fun moment of, like, you know, one of them's popping into frame, one of them's popping out of frame, it's and it's great. It was with great. Robbie and... Jessica. Yes. Jessica's got, like, her, uh, like, her feet are, yes. like, eight, eight, in, like, something like eight feet above her head. Like, yes. you know, she's just stretching those long legs, and it's just impressive, and... Mm-hmm. While they're chatting away about... Uh, oh, because, oh, because, oh, because Karen's big drama is yeah. that... Uh, she's supposed to. They want to take a. a the producer Bobby wants to Raskin, meet with her. Like he's in town, but for like five minutes. Yes, yeah, so the only time he can meet with her is during the workshop. But she doesn't want to miss the workshop because mm-hmm. she's so sweet. Let's. Can we talk about that for a moment? Because I, I, I'm feeling very Libra here, where I see both sides of it. Like, and I have to admit that I've had a Karen moment. Um, not at the level of like Tommy Matola <laughs> wants to meet you. Um, but I've had that moment where I'm like, oh, no, I'm like, I am scheduled to do this job. But I, I, I get a call for like the thing that's like an actual resume booster and an opportunity. And I go, oh, but, but I said I'd be here tomorrow. <laughs> and like not realizing and at things I didn't socialize it with other people. Mm-hmm. Like if I had probably possibly even if I had because. You and I were friends at the time. I, I probably, like, if I, if, I, if I had even run it past you, I might have made a different choice. Like, no, you should go on this hugely popular television show. Earn you money. That yeah. they're, you've been on before, and now they're calling you again. And this is, like, a really good thing that they're calling you again. So you should go do that. You don't need to go teach that class. <laughs> like, I, I would have told you to skip that class, I think. And I think that that probably says a lot about me and why I, I – yeah, well, I, there's something I'm lacking that I don't have Ivy's ice cold blood in my veins where and I, I was segueing at that point where I, I was really enjoying like teaching and directing more than acting. And so possibly, you know, it was part of my process. But like, yes, I, I was in that moment. I literally had that moment where I I felt like I was supposed to do the thing I already said I would do. And it just... And I, I look back on it all the time, and I do, I do, I play, I, I play what if constantly about mm-hmm. that. You know, you never know. You never know who you would have met or what you would have done. Or, like, you go back, and then people remember you. And then they're like, 
hey, let me call you in for this other thing. Yeah. yeah. But I just, I was always bad at networking. And yes. No, yes. And I think, yeah, so I do see both sides of this. I think Jessica and Bobby are giving Karen sound advice mm-hmm. in terms of, I don't think, you know, anyone would have cared if she had missed the workshop in terms of, I don't think there would have been career repercussions for her for missing the workshop. Um, but also I think it's probably part of like, like you were saying, you were more into like teaching and directing at the time. I think Karen at this point in time is more into being on stage than she is into the idea of being like a recording yeah. artiste. Somebody, I mean, like it's, it is not accurate that nobody would have noticed. Well, I'm not saying nobody would have noticed, but I'm saying well, I, they would have worked around it. Sure. You know? And I'm, yeah. I'm, I guess I'm, I'm not like correcting you. I'm saying like, I think Jessica or Bobby says no one will even notice or something like that. Or, and then one of them says, well, Derek will understand. Yeah. Um, and I guess, I guess I just, I, uh, this is, I don't know the answer to that. Like, would, would somebody understand that? I was actually in a play once where one of the leads got a TV opportunity and it meant him missing like weeks of rehearsal <laughs> and the, and it's so a, the director really supported it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause he's like, yeah, this is like a huge. So did he do both? Or did they recast he, um, it? Because it was really late in the game, he was basically missing like the three weeks prior to like the week of the show or something like that. Like that, he did both, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so um, yeah, yeah. Maybe now that I'm comparing and contrasting these experiences, yeah, yeah like maybe the I director think, would. I think even Derek would have understood. Yeah, and because also in the grand scheme of the show at this point, like I don't think Karen is you know, one of Derek's chief concerns. Yeah. And there's certainly other, it's not like there's literally like two, it's not like there's, it's not, it's yeah. not like just like literally three female um, ensemble members. And like, if Karen, like they're like, Jen, and, like yeah, Jenny and, LaRoche can step in. Like there's yes. other women who can step in. Yeah. And it, yeah, it's part. not like it's a workshop of true West. And if she's not there, <laughs> there's no one for the other actor to talk to. <laughs> like there's just a true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, and then, um, so then Derek and Eileen, well, this is the whole thing, again, like the, the lack of urgency in terms of like, there's, there doesn't seem to be a lot of people scurrying around, you know, you know, there's no kind of like hubbub in the hallway. Um, Derek, even though it's the last day of rehearsal, like, you know, kind of has, it seems plenty of time to have this kind of, you know, discussion with Eileen. I love the discussion with Eileen, but it's still, it's like, shouldn't people be doing things? Mm -hmm. But so Derek and Eileen have the discussion of like, where Derek's like, you know, sometimes shows are just uh, not meant to be and they Mm -hmm. don't work out. And this is starting to feel like one of those things. (laughs) (laughs) I like that scene because I, one of the things I was missing were anybody's nerves. Yeah. And a lot of people seemed very old hat at this and, I imagine that even if, I mean, none of these people are 80 years into their career. So I, I just, maybe a few more people, especially like the younger, you know, ensemble members, like a few more people should be like, have excited 
excited, nervous, nervous, excited. Um, so I liked at least that Derek, in his English O's way, was socializing some of his um, his nerves. Yeah. And you know what? Eileen, as part of being a boss this week, she is also great at giving pep talks. She's fantastic. And she is far better at Derek or Tom at giving pep talks because they both try it at various points of the episode and she's way better at it than either of them. <sighs> and um, she gives is so, she's just so competent at every aspect of her job. She's, she's on fire this week, mm-hmm. but you know, sometimes even being super competent at your job does not lead to success. And that's kind of a little bit what happens to her this week. So, mm-hmm. and so now, you know, we have people starting to like come in to the space. They've got chairs set up for the audience. And I like the moment of Bobby peeping through the curtain and that's that gave me a little bit of yeah. that, you know, oh, there's people out here. Yeah. Why are people here? Look yeah. That us. gave me a yeah. little bit of that, like, you know, ex- pre-show yes. excitement um and he so he's talking to karen and like oh you know yeah there's that guy in the audience he's an agent who has three people who'd be perfect for Marilyn. uh-oh and then and sam um, is like you motherfuckers what are you doing ivy can hear you and he like pulls back like a secondary curtain and ivy's like you know She's sitting there, like, like, staring at them, and she gives a little wave. And also, I may be remembering this wrong, but I feel like Ivy, on the day of the show, we don't see her talk much to people before the show because she's saving her voice because yeah. she's there when all the when the ensemble when bobby and karen and jessica are talking and she just doesn't engage with them yeah and then at this moment where she just gives them a wave and mm-hmm. an eye roll yeah but she doesn't talk to them possibly because she's saving her voice you know not that i was like ever like the leader of a broadway player and thing but like i've i've been the lead in plays and i've been in you know, the ensemble of musicals and I've been, you know, just a a minor background character in plays and things like that. And it is very different. The experience of having two lines in a play and just having lots of downtime to like giggle and gossip is very different than I have 80% of the lines in this and I need to focus and I need to save my energy and I need to be in a very particular zone and do not talk to me. Do not tell me upsetting news. Do not like, mm-hmm. it's just different. And it's like, it's, you're the same person and you might be doing those two shows within six months of each other, <laughs> you know, but, um, you just, it's just a fact. I think yeah. you have to go into a very different zone. Yeah. But I think also Ivy is not in the right zone. She, or, she, she, she seems to like already be perturbed. Well, and not even perturbed, but I, like I said, defeated, mm. like she's coming in like, already feeling her energy is yes her energy is, is very low and we've seen her be like super focused and it mm-hmm. doesn't feel like she's focused and there's another thing we don't see we don't see any pre-show ritual yeah we don't see yeah we don't see any like energy circle yes or we don't hear we don't see anyone warming up their voice yeah. that might have been some nice stuff an energy circle would have been lovely and like derek like talking to the cast as a group yes giving them one of his patented Derek pep talks. Yeah. But like, you know, that would, that would have been a nice moment that I think maybe would have helped give that little amp of energy that like I feel was lacking in the lead up to the workshop. Um, oh, and John, the lawyer comes to the workshop and, and he, he starts like, he's, 
<laughs> like, you, I wrote down, like, you do not walk into a room and start assigning Tony Award winner Leslie Odom Jr. like errands. Well, yes, but that's, the, I think, John the lawyer does just not know the etiquette of this situation at all. Do you want to know he what I a... think it was? Racist. <laughs> he picks the black guy to go and, and be his messenger. Well, I think he picks the guy who is the alternate love interest for Tom because that's the most interesting person to give that story, that, to give that line to. I understand to. why the writers did it. <laughs> oh, but why John why the fictional Why John cat? the lawyer? Okay. I think when you look out and you see like this like sea of white people, you know, like he picks the black guy. I, I want to think better of John the lawyer. He is our shining, he's been our shining light of masculinity so far in this show. Like, the thing is, and I, I mean, I'm sure this has happened to you. I know it's happened to me where like you meet, you like you become friendly with somebody and like they, they're great. And like you're, they're funny and they're so nice. Like they're, they're polite to waiters and like they, they are just kind and funny and like, you know, will help you move and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden, like you find out that they're like really super duper racist. <laughs> Oh, like that. I just like, I think that happens with white people where, um, and it can just all of a sudden it just comes up and all of a sudden you're like, wow, you're like, how, how did you navigate this whole world? And you learned how to do all these other things so well. (laughs) And like, and you're just, uh, you're just, you're just really casually racist. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to convict John the lawyer on circumstantial sure. evidence. That's it's fine. not like I would have to go back and look, but it's not like we saw Bobby pass by and mm-hmm. him not say anything to Bobby, and then we see Leslie Odom Sam mm-hmm. Sam pass by. So I think I think the jury is out. I you know we'll have to see whether. But I, I will. Keep, I'm keeping my eye. Oh, on your, John the your lawyer. eye is on John the lawyer now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he's on probation he's on probation all like, right i mean white cis men are on probation like okay he is yes you said white cis so yes. he is white cis yeah <laughs> all right so then tom gives ivy a pep talk before the show because he has noticed that she is uh you know yeah. not at her iviest so like yeah so sam sam and tom are like looking out for ivy which is mm-hmm. Yes. Delightful. And that's where, you know, Tom, this is where Tom says that thing about, you've got ice cold blood in your veins. Or, or he says, you have ice water running ice through your water. Body. Yeah. Oh, and uh, meanwhile, like Nick and Eileen are still trying to deal with the furnace situation. Nick, Nick has gotten his, his friend there. Eileen is able to get the padlock off the door to the boiler room with two strikes of the wrench to the padlock. And I'm impressed by that. Oh. So she is a. She is competent in all things. And Nick, he wants to help. He wants to help. He see like a woman needs help, and he's like there to help. And like, and he gives her like updates. And when it's not going well, like he apologizes because he knows that this is like a really big deal for her and stuff like that. And he's just like, and like at this point, Eileen looks into Nick's eyes, and it's clear that she wants to have ten thousand of his babies. <laughs> She's like, I want you to stay for my workshop. And he's like. Let me wash up. She's like, there's a bathroom down the hall. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like we're, we're going to see more of Nick the bartender's. Yeah. But yes, Nick the bartender, he's, uh, 
He's mm-hmm. a nice fella. And even though I am, my eye is on lawyer John, he's a great boyfriend. <laughs> he and is. he is so enthusiastic. Like he's I like, mean, he left oh, work in the middle of the afternoon yes, for this. Yes, those were billable hours. Yes. Yes. I bet he's still billing those hours. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not lawyer John. Yeah. Oh, he's going to work late tonight to make up for it. He's going to work late. But he's like, as soon as like, uh, like they, they, uh, I always forget Tom's last name, but like the, you know, Derek uh, uh, acknowledges the, the writing team of Houston and Levitt and John, the lawyer, like applauds. He applauds in the wrong place because oh, and it's so sweet. Yes. But the room is full of people. It's still very hot. The furnace hasn't been fixed. Um, oh, and of course, Lee Conroy arrives late mm-hmm. to make a grand entrance. There's an offensive gaydar conversation. Oh, yes. But yes, that was <laughs> offensive. But what I love is they called it out in terms of being like, oh, I hate that word gaydar. And yeah, but so so Tom learns that Sam, despite his love of all of the sports, is not straight, but gay. Um, Ivy mentions that to him before the show. Yeah, so, and then, oh, and I think we see Ralph, the producer, in the audience. Yes, yes, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure that we yes. do. I, I think I he was uncredited. Right I looked on IMDb, but, like, I know those glasses. Yes. That's Ralph, like the producer. Him. And you know who is, like, excellent in the actual workshop? Wesley Taylor as Bobby. Like, yes. He's really selling it. Like, yes. I think, like Ivy, he's also a star. <laughs> But yes, so then we get into the show. The show begins, um, and you like know, it starts off like it starts off like like good. But there's and I this is I just I don't know how I don't know how like the TV magic managed to do this. But like because everything sounds fine, but there's just something that's not not there there's there's like a lack of electricity and it's yes. so hard and it's it's that's why i just think the direction's re- really good this is just one of the many reasons this is like a non-obvious thing because it's just it's so hard to put your finger on what's missing but something is missing um and then of course like there are things that actually start going wrong <laughs> yes like there's just like these little flubs like Diane, uh ivy falls off the baseball bat during the baseball number mm-hmm. um but i like how um you know, we stay in the room. We don't go away into fantasy numbers, except for when we flash back. Karen. Oh, yes. When Karen is looking at Karen it. Karen really sees herself yeah. in Marilyn. Yes. In the in the Fox Mambo yeah, number. It's like, you know, Karen passed up like an amazing opportunity to be here at this workshop. And I think like for once, we're really getting a sense of like how badly she wants this yeah and we also do see a flashback of the baseball number from mm-hmm. the pilot yeah um but i'd like that they you know other than yeah other than that we stayed in the room yes. in the non-fantasy in yes. the reality of mm-hmm. you know we, we're just we got a wooden floor with tape on it yep um and then and then uh I forget even what song they're at at that point. Maybe it's the baseball song. But Karen is so enthused and she raises her arms and she falls off the, the risers that she's on. Fucking Karen Cartwright. Uh, and that's intermission. And also throughout the show, like, I love, you know, we, we periodically go to look at Derek and Eileen in the audience and to look at Tom and Julia in the audience. And Derek and Eileen, like, you know, the 
the two actors playing Derek and Eileen, like, I think we're doing such a good job of playing, like, just being so super full of tension, but trying to keep a mask of, like, mm-hmm. everything is fine and I'm totally cool with what's happening here. Like they can barely move. Yeah. <laughs> and, um... And Tom and Julia express yes. their anxiety, like... And I love to get Tom and Julia and Frank. And Frank just looks like a happy little golden oh. retriever. And Tom and Julia are just like, you a, know, a riddled wreck. with tension right next to him. Yes. And I like the contrast of that. Yes. But oh. um, And also you see the, like all the, the producers and big wigs and money people are like, they're so physically uncomfortable because of the heat. And like, I wish they had done that a little more though. It's funny, like the level of heat, I feel like, varies person by person Mm -hmm. like there's one anonymous ensemble member who is super sweaty yes and then yes but then karen and ivy and all the other people whose names we Uh know are not at all sweaty i would have and i I can see how you know this goes back and forth with like do we want our leading man to look unattractive at this moment but i think that michael swift it probably should have been sweatier especially because he's so dressed (laughs) Yes, he's got a suit on and a hat. Yeah. Yeah, so, and I thought also, like, the audience, like, they could have been a little, like, Mm -hmm. you know, fidgetier and sweatier, Mm -hmm. too. Like, I feel like the the level of heat, like, there was not, there was not a uniform agreement on, like, how hot this room actually was. Um, Yeah. Oh, but at intermission, after Karen falls off her chair, um, Derek, uh goes to talk to Ivy. I have mixed feelings about this in terms of Derek goes to Ivy and was like, I forget exactly what he says, but he says something of like, you know, I know you can do this. I know you can be great in this. You are off your game right now. And like focus. And then Tom uh, witnesses this and then, you know, says like, how dare you say something like that to an actor during intermission? So, Here's my two sides of this equation. On the one hand, um, I think in general, to give actor a note in intermission is not a great thing. But this is their one and only performance. Mm -hmm. So if if Derek doesn't try to fix it now, he has no, you know, he and Ivy, no one has a chance to fix it. So I think, I think what, you know, I think the problem is that Derek is terrible at giving pep talks. Like, if he had given a good pep talk to Ivy, you know, but, like, if he doesn't say it now, he has no chance to fix it later. I have no problem with Derek speaking to Ivy during intermission. Mm -hmm. It's just that he said all the wrong things. Yes. He just said everything completely wrong. (laughs) And there's no evidence that Derek is a good director. (laughs) No. Well, no. Speaking to actors is, like, It's a big part of the job. Of what a theater director... I mean, you can definitely be an asshole and be a good theater director. Yeah. Um, Oh, absolutely. But he is... he. But yes, we have not seen Derek demonstrate how his, you know... Yeah, at at, at no point has he he said something to an actor where you you see the actor have that light bulb moment. Yes. All of a sudden, like... Oh, and now I get it. Even if it's a light bulb moment of like, I'm going to show this prick. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And... Also, I mean, part of a director's job, too, is that what what works for one actor doesn't work for another actor. Like, you know, you have to have more in your toolbox than get your head in the game, you know? <laughs> he, yeah, Derek really has, like, one mode with actors. He does, well, was Derek a good director in, like, episode two or something? I remember at, w- at one point he said something that we thought 
was good direction. <laughs> they said like one thing. We we're like, that's solid direction. Was it like the callback episode it, uh, or thing? So, oh, it, uh, you know what? It, you know what it was, and it, it was, uh, um, don't do my Marilyn be Marilyn. Something. It was something very like simple, mm-hmm. and you know, like a, a million directors have said this before. It's still good, mm-hmm. you know. Like stop trying to do her, you know. Yeah, like try. Like, yeah, because yeah. Karen was just trying to like do the, because you know, of course, because Karen didn't prepare, so she's like, "Should I do the voice or like, do you want me to like what?" Like- yeah. Well, that's another. <laughs> speaking of that, that's another quibble I have with this workshop performance that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. So, in like the first few episodes, they made a big deal about like how much research Ivy had done and how like she had a. Uh, she had really mastered so many of the technical yes. aspects of Marilyn in terms of the voice and the posture and whatever. And I feel like we don't see any of that in this. I agree. Yeah. I agree. It's not there. And I don't know if that's supposed to be part of what Ivy's not bringing to the workshop in addition to her Yeah, we see it for like a millisecond her... during Fox Mamba where she does like the voice. Yeah. But, you know, and we haven't really seen it in the past few episodes either which and i was fine not seeing it in the past few episodes in terms of like when she's actively doing a musical number like you know Mm. yeah so that was another like weird thing where i don't know yes like like you said i don't know if that's like part of the way they're trying to sandbag this um workshop performance Mm -hmm. or if it you know it just escaped everyone's mind that um Part of the reason that Ivy got the role was she was so good at doing the Marilyn voice and the Marilyn walk and everything else. Mm-hmm. And then we don't see her do any of that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Oh, but I do think also like something good that they're doing overall in the show to date is kind of doling out the songs. Yes. In this terms is our, like the first, I don't know if we've had snippets of it prior but this is the, this is the first time we're hearing lexington and 50 this Second is the Street. first time we're hearing it at all i Which believe i like it and i know that michael swift is like really really pissed at julia right now so there's like extra hurt and like anger uh, but I, especially now that i know more about joe dimaggio than i did before we started this podcast and that mm-hmm. joe dimaggio was abusive and stuff like there's i i like i like that michael swift makes in this performance he's uh he's he's a scarier joe dimaggio you know he's I don't know if, like, you know, I don't find him, in the song, I don't find him scary or whatever. There's, like, a, a, there's like he's, um, he's, like, a wounded animal. And, you know, how they can be. Yeah. You know, they people say, right, there's, like, some adage or something. It's something about, like, a, you know, wounded animals are, are, are dangerous because they're, they're ready to strike or something. Mm-hmm. And there's just, um, he's filled with rage. And he's... I liked the performance of the song. I liked the performance of the song. Um, yeah, and I like that, like, yes, you know, we get a new song. I also like that we didn't have to hear that Wolf Howl song again. That was great. Yeah. Um, so, but, so I like the song. The song's good. Uh, the dialogue, like, the book, you know, <laughs> the, the lines that Derek thought was great, I, I did not like. And also, um, I... I guess I sort of, uh, I guess it's fine, but like the, the, the idea of like Joe DiMaggio being this like, 
you know, wounded, uh, you know, baby bird. Like, I'm not super here for that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, made, <laughs> it made me think of when I watched uh, mm-hmm. the, do you ever see the movie De Lovely? No, I I know it's you know the Kevin Klein movie. Yes, yeah. the Kevin Klein uh, movie where he plays Cole Porter. Mm-hmm. So and Ashley Judd plays his wife, um, and uh, the real love of his life because the real love of a gay man's wife is a heterosexual woman. Yeah. Um, but but they were together for like fifty years, and I'm sure they were very close. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so I remember watching this movie with my mom once, and uh, so. His wife uh, knew, knew he was gay when they got married in, like, 1920s Paris. Um, and then, like, he went on to, like, have affairs with lots of people, including, like, Rudolf Nureyev. Is that the right ballet guy? One of, you know, some fancy ballet guy when they were still in Europe. And, like, um, so I remember my mom, like, as this was going on, being like, this is so hurtful. Like, how could you do this to someone you loved? Like, she know, he knows how much she loves him. And I was like, he, she, you know, she knew he was gay when she married him. And then he'd have another affair. And my mom would be like, he had another affair. <laughs> and I'd be like, she knew he was gay when she married him. And we just did that throughout the whole movie in terms of like, but he loves her. And he's like, but he's gay, you know. Oh. <laughs> well, then he should have married her. Well, well yeah. yeah, maybe not. But yeah, so... So I feel like a little bit of that, like about Joe DiMaggio in real life, like separate from the show in terms of like, she was like, he, he married someone who was like this sex symbol movie star. And then he was upset that she was a sex symbol movie yeah. star. And it just made, yeah. So it made me think of like the lovely thing of like, but he's still gay even after they got married. Yeah. He was like, a gay. He before. married Marilyn Monroe at like yeah. the height of her being Marilyn Monroe. I, think, I just want to clarify, because when I say that, like, wounded animal, I do not mean, like, cute baby bird. Yeah, I mean, like, I, yeah. But I feel like I mean, the like, song wolf. was, <laughs> I feel like the song was a little baby bird at moments in terms of, where he talks oh. about, like, look at the tears in my eyes as I cry. As a... See, you know what's interesting? You know what? Okay. So, I, this is not. And also, of, uh, Joe, you know, he, the character, could feel himself a baby bird, even if the writers of the show are not, even if the show is not saying he's a baby bird, you know, Joe DiMaggio, the character in the musical, could feel like a baby mm-hmm. bird. All right. So the R&B singer Ciara used to be married to the, uh, who is he? Uh, I'm actually not sure if he's a rapper or a singer, but future. And, um, and they had a very toxic relationship and they've been broken up are divorced for a lengthy period of time and like future will not stop talking about her and like he'll like go on like instagram rants about like she needs to stop talking about me and she's hasn't mentioned his name and stuff like that and so uh, future talks about her like as in like poor me i'm so upset like she keeps hurting me and there's been another cycle of like future doing that (laughs) In the news, and uh, I don't know. I so as I was rewatching this, I was sort of thinking a little bit about toxic men who can really spin their relationship with a woman where she's the one doing the hurting, and that he's not responsible for any of the pain. Joe DiMaggio was a wife beater. <laughs> <laughs> and in conclusion, and in conclusion. 
Yeah. So, and I know that they're not like they're not, they're not. They, I don't think at any point they they talk aside from um, you know Will Will Chase has that one line in the diner where he's like, I hope you don't like write um, Joe DiMaggio as like a, a monster. And aside from that very subtle, where you'd have to know uh, that Joe DiMaggio beat the shit out of Marilyn Monroe, like to know that that's what they're referencing. Um, there's no, there's just no mention of it. Um, but it's like, I think, you know, it's like once, it's like once you know that it's just like, of course it's going to color everything, even mm-hmm. though Joe DiMaggio helped invent the breast cancer. T- <laughs> yes. <laughs> even though he helped cure breast cancer, yes. you know, <laughs> just goes to show what a huh. crazy tapestry <laughs> people are. So, oh, so yeah. So still talking about the, all right. So. We got a new song. We got that 52nd Street scene. Also, this is a side note. This Mm -hmm. is really a quibble. But, like, on the one hand, like, I loved how they had, like, the box fans and how that's, you know, like, how practically in the room they were doing the the big uh, subway skirt thing. Uh Uh-huh. But on the other hand, in real life, those fans would have been super loud in the rehearsal room. And I wonder, like, how they got them, you know, turned on and off at the right time. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I'm willing to accept that, you know. Yeah, for just like the moment of like this yeah. is how it's going to be. But of like, oh, look how they're doing this! Isn't this clever? But in mm-hmm. real life, those fans would have been very loud. Um, yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. So then the show is finally over. People clap, um, and it's like, yeah, there's polite applause, and then they it's real quick and subtle, but you see um, people like leaving promptly and. And somebody like there's some there's a very quick exchange with like Derek I think where someone's like I'll, I'll let you know you know mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like immediately we're finally on Smash we're shown <laughs> how people feel about something instead of being told about it mm-hmm. um, so yes we can see that the response was not they were they were underwhelmed the response was tepid and I think I think um, I I think it's difficult to. I know, like, they wanted this performance to be, like, to not hit it out of the park because yes. of plot reasons. They, you know, they need they need some struggle. Um, and uh, we get to that, like, when Eileen and, you know, Derek and Tom and Julie are talking in the office that, you know, that there's retooling that needs to happen. But I think, I, want, I don't know if, it, like, I think it would have been, like it's great to see like a really great musical number mm-hmm. and it's also great to see like a complete train wreck happen. Mm-hmm. Those are both things that are like exciting and entertaining to watch. It's I I I don't know if there was a more interesting way to show something kind of fall flat and not have it also be flat to watch. Where it's not a train wreck and it's not like amazing, but it's just kind of like, I wish, I wish like we had seen more like maybe highs and lows in the performance. That yes would have been more effective because I, I, I like that the workshop was not a success. Yes. I, I'm fine with the workshop not being a success, but I think the moments of like Ivy, like physically stumbling didn't uh, it didn't it didn't it didn't sell me because she's because she's just so 
competent, <laughs> you know, um, the couch in particular, the, the baseball bats I could see, cause that like that involves other people as well, but the couch thing, it just didn't, um, I, I don't know how many takes they took of that, <laughs> but it just, it never, it didn't work for me. It never, I never believed that anyone was having trouble <laughs> with the couch. It mm-hmm. just didn't, it didn't work. Um, but I would have loved like thunderous applause after like, let me be your star. And then, and then everyone's like, and then they like, maybe there's that, and then they do another number and there's that like, wait for applause and it doesn't come, you know, that would have been yes. great. So yes, to do okay. some like armchair quarterbacking. Yeah. I think I would have liked that better mm-hmm. in terms of like seeing that mix of highs and lows and yeah, seeing something really land and be great. And then seeing something not land and oh, not be great. Like if there had been something in um, previous episodes where like a line that always got a laugh or something, you know. That would have been nice if they had, like, kind of built that in from the beginning. Yeah. Or, well, and also in, like, the dialogue with the 52nd Street song, you know, I I would have liked it if maybe someone had flubbed a line in that because apparently they just learned the lines 30 minutes ago. So I think that would have been, like, a nice way to kind of show, you know, show some frayed seams Mm -hmm. a little bit. But... Yeah, so I think that that was, I think, my big trouble in terms yeah. of, I get it's not supposed to be a success, but it should still be, like, interesting for us as an audience to watch. And it wasn't consistently interesting yeah. to watch. So it was, it was more exciting watching Derek and Eileen's faces watching mm-hmm. it than it was watching the performers perform. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... I don't know. Yeah. So, but yeah, but they got through it. The performance is over. Karen and the, and the ensemble are kind of all like loosey goosey yeah. chatting backstage. And that's delightful and adorable. Tom's and, a terrible boyfriend to lawyer John. Yeah. He blows so... him off. Yeah. Yeah. Tom's not a great boyfriend to lawyer John. No. Doesn't Tom at some point in this episode say John's not my boyfriend. Oh yes. That's right. He that, does. Yeah. If you're asking someone to, like, schlep to your workshop, yeah. they better be your boyfriend. I mean, yeah. yeah. Oh, and then we have the Ivy and Lee scene. Yes, which is staged beautifully. I I love the two of them together, and I feel like, you know, Ivy's hurt and also, like, her lack of, you know, also, like, her lack of surprise and all of this. I think it's all great. Yeah. Yeah. And... Sorry, I'm just before we get we talk about this anymore. I want to say that something I really liked is how we saw how moved Lee was watching her daughter in the yeah. workshop, and I think that that's important to interject because it colors. Yeah, like, and the I rest think we also see how nervous show. she was watching her daughter perform. Yes. How she really wanted this for her. Yeah, yeah. and things Ivy. It's it's like only, and only we know that because Ivy didn't see her mom reacting, yeah. and and so only we know how proud Lee was and how emotionally invested Lee was in Ivy mm-hmm. doing well. Yes, and people can you know be doing two completely conflicting things at the same time, absolutely. and Lee is definitely doing that. But absolutely, yeah. One thing, so I really liked this scene, and you know Megan Hilty was you know, a heartbreaker in it. Um, but I, she, she went onto this, Ivy went onto this rant about how Lee was like Marilyn Monroe's mom. And that did not ring true to that me. That fell 
flat. Everything was fine until she until she connected it to yeah. And you're the reason I take prednisone, mom. <laughs> I learned it from watching you. Um, but because Marilyn Monroe's mom was not like this passive aggressive, withholding. She basically abandoned her very young age. Well, she uh, she had her out of wedlock, and yeah. she had to work to support herself. So she lived with the so the baby she, lived with the foster family, and yeah. her mother would see her, would visit on weekends, and would see her as much as she could, and then did eventually take her to live with her, and then had a nervous breakdown. And, yeah, but so her mother was not like withholding or you know doing these little passive aggressive jabs at her she was like straight up mentally ill i mean yeah. but she seemed like she loved her and you there's know a, you know there's a lot i don't know i i i more more of what i know about marilyn's childhood is about the awful sexual assault and trauma she experienced at the the hands of like foster, foster families, families and the, yeah and um and like family friends that she would stay with and, and, and yeah. So I, 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 I am a little uneducated about kind of like where physically her mother was. I, I didn't. Well, I think from the time she was like young, like, I don't know, five or seven mm-hmm. like that, like I think was maybe the first time her mother was institutionalized. Oh, my goodness. And from that okay. point on, I think her mother was, in and out of institutions. Oh, wow. Okay, so her mother did not abandon her. Her mother was a, a poor and working and, you know, and then and she was disabled and mentally ill. And Yeah, that's lot. my understanding. Okay. And again, like, I did a little, I did like, a, I did a smidge of Googling. Sure. Like five minutes before we started <laughs> recording. So, but that's my, that's my general recollection okay. from, you know, what I've read and watched over the years. And, sure. You know, so... Yeah, so I don't think I don't think that compare the comparison Ivy is making holds true at all. And maybe Ivy is just a, uh, you know, and I think Ivy knows better because she of all of her in depth Marilyn research. Mm-hmm. But I think I'm willing to cut her some slack in terms of she just wants to yell at her mom and yeah. have some ammunition. But I also foreshadowing, I think that the show is trying trying to mirror ivy and Marilyn too much they're, just, oh they're trying it. to make fetch happen they yeah. really are you know yeah and i think if they didn't if they didn't work so hard to like yeah. make underline these things for us like because it's not like slings and arrows where the point is that the act the actors are are mirroring the characters have we talked at slings and arrows oh, maybe slings no. okay and so arrows slings and arrows podcast? is an amazing canadian I guess would it be called a mini series? I think I would just call it a television series. A television it was like three, series, three it was like, seasons. There are three seasons, and so what it is is that it's this. Um, it's a Canadian Shakespeare theater company, and so um, what you're watching is the, the each season of the show is like a theater season, and they're doing a Shakespeare play, but then the action off screen is is mirroring the action on screen so like the first season they're doing hamlet and there's like literally like a ghost is haunting <laughs> a character and it's wonderful and you yes. should see it it's really really and good and the second season is macbeth and the third season is king lear it's really I think good my f- oh and the I love first all the season seasons. has rachel mcadams yes and it's really fun <laughs> and this is where i started my actor slash person crush on luke kirby who's in oh. season one yeah 
And he's also in um, the movie uh, with Michelle Williams and Seth Rogen, and the name is escaping me. Oh, I'm drawing a total blank. Uh, Take This Waltz. Okay. Yes. And, uh, yeah. I'm completely unfamiliar with that movie. It's it's by, uh, oh, well, another Slings and Arrows connection. So it was directed, is written and directed by Sarah Polly. Oh! Yes. And um, it's real good. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Oh, um, neat. Okay. Yeah, he plays a sexy man in it. So, and he, now he is in... <laughs> I'm like, Seth Rogen? <laughs> no! <laughs> <I'm> like... <laughs> I'm back. I'm back. <laughs> and of course, now Luke Kirby is playing um, Lenny Bruce. He's playing Lenny Bruce in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Oh, that's neat. Yeah. But and I think because he's a Canadian-based actor, like, we don't see him in things all that yeah. often. So whenever I do see him in something, I'm like, it's Luke Kirby from Slings and Arrows and other things. It's really cool when you, like, kind of meet an actor when like something you know crosses uh, you know the continent or 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 an ocean or something and you know you you, you meet people who are like a big deal in another country mm-hmm. and like like I don't know who you are but you're like the biggest bollywood star in india and all. I think that's like I think that's the best kind of famous to be where like you're really beloved and super famous in one place mm-hmm. and then like if you want to get away from being beloved and super famous oh. you could just go someplace else yeah. where like the thing you're famous for is not a thing yeah like if you're a famous cricket cricketeer i think they're called okay. cricketeers yes a cricketeer it sounds funny yeah it's like yes. it sounds like mouseketeer and you're like <laughs> It does sound, well, it sounds, yeah, it sounds adorable and like something, yeah, you know. like you wear little hats. Yeah. And they do. I, well, they do. Yeah. I love a sport where you wear a sweater to play it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Slings oh, and arrows. I, yes. How did we? So, um, mirroring. They're trying to make, I think they're yeah. trying to make Ivy's, uh, they're trying to make Ivy mirror Marilyn, like in, in, terms, in, in of terms of pills, pills, pills and mother issues. issues and, I guess, I don't know, mental illness. I mean, I, I I really hope Ivy doesn't just get, like, raped randomly. Like, that would be terrible, you know? Like, I don't know how far they're going to take this. Well, oh, um, and also, you I mean, know, I unhealthy do. relationships with men. Before. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Because yeah. um, you know who else did that? Marilyn. Um, I like how they snuck in a quick reference to Jimmy to tie in this Lee with the With the Lee from the, the phone, phone call. Yes. Yeah, it's just like, your dad's going to be so disappointed. And so will Jimmy. <laughs> Jimmy, now that we've met Mason and his vaporizer, Jimmy is now my favorite, like, off-screen character. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but so then after this, you know, heartbreaker scene right after the show at the studio, they've got another scene together when at Ivy's apartment where they have conversations that I don't think people have in real life. And I'm fine with conversations that would never happen in real life happening in television shows. Mm-hmm. But... I don't know. It feels like they almost have too much closure or, yeah. Yeah, it's weird. I, I would have, I think the rehearsal room should have been their last scene. I agree. Because it's also. I wonder. Also, also her mom, like, 
I don't know, maybe I'm drawing in my real life, but her mom's like a drama queen too. So, and I don't mean just like in the sense that like she's an actor. I mean, like she's somebody who likes a little air of drama wherever she walks, like, and wants that kind of attention, even if it's negative. And I just think her mom would not have been so humble, like in her apartment. Like it did seem like a departure from the Lee that mm -hmm. we have seen through the rest of the episode. So basically Lee you know, has packed her bags and she's ready to go and, you know, basically says to Ivy, like, I, I, I'm only, you know, I only, I only say these things because I'm only unsupportive because it hurts so much because I love you so much. It hurts so much to like watch you, you know, go through all of this and I wish you didn't have to. And, yeah, and yada, also I yada. wish you'd do any other career on the planet than yes. this. <laughs> yeah. And it, yeah, I, if they had to have the scene, I wish they had like cut half of it out because it's yeah. it's a it's a it's really gilding the lily, you know. Because the she, she pivots from "I wish you weren't an actor" to and uh, as you were saying, it's horrible to watch untalented people rise above you when you're so talented. So I, I don't know. I, I'm just like, I my kids are young, but if you're like if your child is fantastically talented in something. Like, I mean, and clearly, I mean, listen, Ivy is a working actor. Ivy's career is enviable. I mean, she is like in the top 1% in terms of she's a musical theater performer who makes her living as a musical theater performer on Broadway consistently yeah. for, and she's been doing it for like 10 years. So. Yeah. She lives in New York City. She has a, an apartment by herself. Like her life is... I mean, little kids dream about Ivy Lynn's life. You know, yeah. I'm going to grow up and I'm going to, I'm going to work real hard and I'm going to live in New York city. And I don't care if I have to eat ramen every night. Like I'm going to do it cause I love it. And like, she's actually doing it. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. So yeah, I wonder if like part of it too is like they, they wanted to make this character slightly more sympathetic before the end of the episode because she's being played by Bernadette Peters oh. and they, you know, want to leave, you know, the door open to have her back. I don't know. Maybe they're trying to tie in how Lee responded to watching her her daughter sing to. I would have been perfectly happy watching Lee respond to her daughter sing. And so that we as an audience know how, mm -hmm. how proud she is and how invested she is. And Ivy doesn't know. I would have been fine with yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like the the kind of the the tension of that of like you know she just can't say it and she just can't stop like giving the little digs. But we know deep down that she's so invested in this. I, I wonder because of course, unlike you know a Broadway show that you workshop and work on for like seven years, as you said, uh, before you know it's on Broadway, a, a television show you don't you don't get that luxury of time. And, and so I wonder if they thought like, oh, this is going to be too subtle. So we got to, we got to keep hitting it over the head that Lee actually cares or that like, maybe it was that <sighs> network bro coming in again. <gasps> being like network bro. Like, I don't gotta, her mom's a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and then they're like, no, no, really. Her mom loves her and her mom's going to, and we're going to prove it by having yes. her mom say it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's the end of Ivy and Lee, where Lee just says all the things after doing the opposite for the whole episode. Mm. Um, and then we go to Eileen's office, where Julia is in her sunglasses. and The sunglasses was weird. 
I mean, that was weird, right? That Julia's just sitting there in her sunglasses. It was weird, yes, but because um, it wasn't like it, it wasn't like she was just coming from. Uh, it was like she was just coming from the breakup where she might have been crying her eyes out and she was trying to cover that up. It was weird. Well, she takes them off at one point and her eyes aren't red. Yeah, so I just yeah. don't know. So I think it was just Julia going into her shell and like trying to have some protective armor on uh-huh. because of Michael Swift and because of the show not being a success and just because of everything. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, it was a little dramatic, but that's fine. Yeah. And and, and so there, I think the, f- I think the first thing is there's like a hint of replacing Ivy because there's interest, but then they quickly veer into, because Eileen again. Well, Tom leaves the. <gasps> oh, Tom does it. You're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah, Tom because does it. yeah, Tom's like, oh, you know, this this always happens. Like something goes wrong and people look for a scapegoat, and Ivy's not the scapegoat. And then he's like, you know what? You know who is a scapegoat? <laughs> Michael Swift. <laughs> I think he's the problem. Yeah. And Eileen, with her intel, like backs that up immediately. Yes. But I like that. I liked, I enjoyed that of like, you know, Tom, Julia, and Eileen all know. I, and I Derek is the only one who doesn't know. And Derek is just like, what? Yeah. <laughs> he was great. And yeah. and they're like no no he's uh he has to go yep so, totally him mm-hmm. you just don't see it because you're a terrible director <laughs> no it's like it's great and also you know they've put so much time into how much Derek respects Eileen that's totally believable that for Eileen to say this is Tom and Julia's decision Derek's mm-hmm. like he doesn't he doesn't argue like mm-hmm. and I and I th- and yeah because Eileen is the boss yeah. And then we end with Julia going home, and we already talked about this, yeah. where she goes home. And Leo makes an overture to her in terms of saying, like, how was the show? Yeah. And she says, you know, you know, we all need some work, and uh, we're firing Michael. Her little boy breaks down in her arms. And... Yeah. And that is, a, you know, yeah. a stark contrast to, like, Ivy and her mother and their... Yeah. Because she's really, like, fucking with Leo's world here. Like, this is... Yes. Yeah. And Frank is upstairs studying chemistry. He's studying. Yeah. So, like, we've gotten through the workshop and, you know, like, plot-wise, this, like, makes sense to me and part of the larger story in terms of, like, okay, it didn't go well and so now we've got to, we've got to shake things up in order to get the money and, you know, yeah. So, and we'll start to see all that play out Mm -hmm. in the next episode, but... I think when I was watching it originally, I, I do think this is the episode where I started to lose faith in the show, though, <laughs> in terms of, you know, just, and we talked about, like, there was, there are lots of lovely moments in this episode, but I feel like the whole was less than the sum of its parts. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, you know, that's some of what we've experienced up until this point in terms yeah. of... Well, maybe we should check in with what the critics thought oh. for our Smash Lash segment. Um, so Noel Murray for AV Club, he wonders if the Smash creative team hates television and if the problems with Smash are because this is what theater people think TV should look like. And 
<laughs> I thought off of that, well, maybe Sam is what the writers think straight people think of gay people. <laughs> like, they're so confusing. <laughs> but you like sports. <laughs> uh, but it also makes me think of Stage Door, which is a great play that talks about how horrible Hollywood is. And then Hollywood makes an iconic movie version of it mm-hmm. that changes it changes the script enormously. I've never read the play. I've seen the movie, oh. of course. So because I don't remember them even talking about Hollywood in I the was, movie. I was in a production of Stage Door. I was the assistant stage manager, and I played this little tiny, tiny part in the play. And so, yes, I'm intimately familiar with the play. But I grew up. I mean, you know what stage door I the carried calla lilies. I literally carried calla lilies on my wedding day because of stage door the movie. Calla lilies. <laughs> I carried it. What's the line? It's like, calla lilies. Such a strange flower. I carry them on my wedding day, and now I place them here in memory of something that has died. <laughs> <laughs> that was the inimitable Catherine Hepburn. Yes. As channeled by Tina. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, no, it's really, really different. Um, the, like the anti, yeah, the, the play is really, really, really anti-Hollywood. Um, and of course the movie version kind of does away with like Hollywood equal, equaling evil, Mm -hmm. but like the Ginger Rogers character in the play, like goes off and becomes a big Hollywood star. And like Terry Randall is like the moral center. (laughs) And, uh, yeah. So yes, you should, everybody should, everybody should rent stage door or stream it or but yeah see if 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 it's ever being staged near you see it but they're very very different Uh uh-huh you know like the big thing that happens happens you know in both versions um but the character of terry randall is extremely different Hmm. Um, interesting but yeah but it's really really fun because it's like it's this huge huge ensemble of women in the play um you know much like the 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 thing but there's there's so much less of like um casting couch sleaziness and Mm -hmm. and stuff like that in the movie in the movie yeah well that would make sense no uh, yeah then in the movie yes no there's a lot less in the play than there is in the movie oh okay like there are scenes like there are men it's not like the women like there are Uh actual men in the play as well, but um, I think the men have less time than in the movie. Okay, and there's less. There's, there's there's several scenes in the sleazy guy's apartment. Okay, you know, yeah. Hmm. Rewatch it. Yes, I haven't seen it in a while. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, there's multiple scenes with like a sleazy guy who takes out starlets and yeah, it's yeah. There. Tell is all this time, <laughs> and then they meet Ben Hecht, and then and- they meet Ben Hecht. <laughs> Um, and then, da, 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 so Ken Tucker for Entertainment Weekly, he likes that the workshop had problems, um, which he contrasts with Glee, which was also on at the time, and how Glee, every every performance is opening night ready. Yeah. And so we don't we never get to see the process. Um, he doesn't believe that no one knew Lee Conroy was Ivy's mom, and he finds Karen annoying, but believable. Um his colleague, Hilary Busis, which I'm confident now is pronounced Busis because I looked it up. Uh, and I watched a speech she gave at her prep school. And <laughs> yes, she went, to, she went to a prep school called Shadyside Academy. That's a great name. Which really, really amuses me. Um, but Hilary Busis wishes that Karen was more devious, that they 
they they worked more with how like Karen's literally doing a show and she's like she's like seeing herself doing what Ivy was doing mm-hmm. and I think yeah, they really could push that more like just it just Ivy sorry Karen is way too saintly like the fact that like Karen falls off a stool because she's so moved by Ivy mm-hmm. it's a little it's saccharine it's a little much so yeah that's our uh, our critic roundup okay so then we've got our awards to yeah we've got our awards to do so first we have under five of the week so do you have any candidates i do now as much as i i want to find a reason to to give it to wesley taylor <laughs> because he's but he's I not don't an think under we can five give it to, we can't because we can't give it to regular. someone who like recurs yeah. episode after episode <laughs> um so i i have to give it to Mason as played by Hunter Gallagher because um, Mason has been built up so much as a character and it's, and I, I just, Mason does not get the iconic line. Uh, he doesn't, you know, he has this really quick line where he's just like, uh, okay, bye Ms. Houston. And, and Deborah Messon gets to give this great line. She's like, stop being so polite, you little shit or something like that. <laughs> oh, you little like, drug addict. You little drug addict. Yes. And it's, you know, so he really sets her up to have a great line. But it's really funny how he's like smoking pot and he still like manages to get like she's not by Leo's mom or by Mrs. Frank's last name. Like he's like he gets the Miz, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you know, Uh, so it's I just I found him delightful. I had been I forgot we got to meet Mason and his vaporizer. (laughs) So, um so yes, that's who I would pick. Okay. Well, yes, I think I think we will give it to Mason then. Sure. My well, my other candidate was like when Julia, when Julia, this guy doesn't even have any lines where he where Julia goes outside uh, after she's seen <laughs> Michael's child yes. and she's just she's got her scarf clasped to her mouth and she's holding onto a bicycle and staring out into the horizon <laughs> and um, we just see this guy like kind of standing back looking at her kind of like you know awkwardly. And uh, then Tom comes down and talks to Julia, and he's like, uh, "I think this guy needs his bike." <laughs> that was a great moment. Yes. I enjoyed that. Yes, I but enjoyed that. I think we have to give it to Mason. <gasps> Yay, Mason! Okay, so Hunter Gallagher, your character Mason is our under five of the week. Congratulations! Yeah. Yay! Now, who is our least problematic man of the week? Okay, so I am gonna go with Sam. Um, there's a lot of like the ensemble sort of talking smack about Ivy for the, you know, behind her back for their own entertainment. And like at no point does Sam participate in that. He actually actively speaks out, um, like calls in and speaks out to his, his fellow ensemble members about like, um, could you stop? Like you're messing with Ivy's head. Like you're being rude. Stop it. Um, And Sam just doesn't, he's just a good friend and he doesn't do anything bad that I can remember. Yeah. I, let me think of my least problematic man. I forgot to think of one. Frank, I think, well, I think the least problematic man is Frank because he do, he does practically nothing this episode (laughs) except he shows up for his wife and he's just super eager to support her. Yeah. So I I was trying to I I was weighing Sam against Frank. Mhm. 
And the only thing I could, this, and this is just me inventing, that like, oh, shouldn't Frank consult with his wife before like he invites her coworker over to like have dinner with them? Oh yeah, I forgot. Well, you know, I think, I think that was Frank still just trying to be a supportive like work spouse. Yes. Yes. So, yeah, yeah, and he was just so excited to see that he show. Was he was really supportive? Yeah, and he was all like, "Great job, honey." Yeah, and he didn't. We didn't watch him cook anything, but I bet he cooked some stuff. He fed Leo. Oh, there you go. Yeah, Julia gets home late after the workshop, and Leo said, "We already ate." Hmm. So there, there are so some he did sliced off up veggies in that boy's tummy. Yep. Yes. All right. I mean, it could be a tie. It could be. We actually, you know, <laughs> we actually have three candidates because I think there's Frank, who is not problematic. Sam, who is very mm-hmm. supportive of Ivy, even though he does ignore her in the opening scene because he's so excited to see Lee Conroy sing. That's a little problematic. Yes. And uh, we have Lawyer John. No, Lawyer John. I know who's <laughs> running for you. <laughs> Just the stuff. He's gotten it before. Yes. He's gotten it before. But you I know. feel like these are... I do love Lawyer John. I'm mm-hmm. just dinging him for... I'm just dinging him. I'd like to believe, until proven otherwise, that he would have stopped the first person he saw walking by who looked like they were in the show. Sure. Regardless of race or I am, gender. I am, I am, I am, let's see, I'm 65% joking. <laughs> it's partly in Sam's reaction. Sam is annoyed that he has been asked to run this errand. Yes. Well, I think Bobby would have taken offense at being asked to run this errand too. I think Bobby would have had the privilege to to talk back. Bobby would have said, um, do I look like your messenger? Like, Bobby would have said something. And Bobby probably would have said something, <laughs> and it would have been great. <laughs> and, but yeah, I think, I think Leslie Odom Jr. added something to the performance that maybe the writers didn't, and the, I'm, I don't even think the writers saw that as like a thing i think they i think they they saw it the same way you saw it where it's like oh well it it makes sense for the story we're where we're, we're setting up this setting love up a love triangle so I, I absolutely think that's what the writers wrote i think the performer brought something to it and that's why performers as they're developing characters deserve a cut of the profits yes <laughs> I can tie it back around. Uh, So Frank or Sam? Frank and Sam? They made Frank by a hair? Has Sam? Frank has definitely won before. Has Sam won before? If Sam might have. Well, no, because I think Sam's all, you know, Sam's had some problematic stuff in past weeks. Oh, remember we talked about he's so gay? Yeah. I'm gay, but he's gay, gay. So I don't know, Sam. I don't think Sam's... So I don't think Sam has won before. Yeah. All right, so we'll give it to Sam. And Sam really does. I mean, I think, like, telling your... Sam has to deal with the ensemble. And I think speaking up to people... Who you you have have to to deal deal with with, every day. Yes. And saying, you're not being kind to this person who needs some kindness and respect right now. And I think men standing up for women is something again not a cookie 
but least problematic male of the week. Okay. Might just be good enough for that. All right. Least problematic male of the week, Sam. Yay, Sam. No Wesley cookies. Odom Jr. <laughs> no cookies for no men on this show. None. None of you. Um, and so the only other thing we, uh, uh, a, a very new thing that we just started doing is uh, because part of why rewatching Smash has been interesting to us is that there we see uh, depictions of sexual harassment and um, sexual harassment in the workplace differently. Well, now, like Eileen and, saying to Eric, like, that's why it's worth putting up with you because you're so good at your job. And mm, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, and the, the reason why we're just more knowledgeable about that is in part because of the work that Toronto Burke has done um, when she started uh, Me Too also, oh, so many years ago, despite Alyssa Milano trying to steal it from her. Um, so our relatively new segment is, what would Toronto Burke say? And I found this quote. I don't think that every single case of sexual harassment has to result in someone being fired. The consequence should vary, but we need a shift in culture so that every single instance of sexual harassment is investigated and dealt with. That's just basic common sense. I like that. Yes. Because if every single instance of sexual harassment was fireable, then Mm -hmm. (laughs) all the men would have to Go home and do the dishes. Well, not all the that men. That doesn't sound bad. I know. <laughs> it doesn't, does it? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, something to, something, to, something to chew on. And did we smash it? I think we did. I can't.